Taylor, remember last year how the Birds of War voted for us in the pitch Kansas City's best of local podcast competition? Yeah, it was amazing. It felt really, really good. When does that when's that coming up? Uh let me just pop a quick Google. Oh. Oh. I have some bad news, Taylor. The deadline is tomorrow. Oh, and we haven't asked anybody wow. to nominate us. We didn't even know we were supposed to. Uh, we didn't even know that we were supposed to be competing. Remember last year, we literally like <laughs> we blasted <laughs> it out for six weeks on the show. Yeah. And the, the loyal Birds of War not, not only nominated Ta-ta. us, but got us into the finals, but they got us to the runner up position. We would have gotten invited to the party if there had been one. There wasn't because of COVID. You know, I like, heard we it, lost by one vote. Ah, I mean, I, Birds of War. Assemble! Welcome in to It's Always Sunny in Chiefs Kingdom. Probably not going to win runner-up for best local podcast in the Pitch KC's competition this year because we forgot about the voting until right this moment when we were recording the podcast. But you you do want to vote for us. Taylor, you've got that URL handy? All right, so I do have the URL. It is vote.thepitchkc.com slash arts dash and dash entertainment slash best dash local dash podcast or go to the pitchkc.com click on nominate go to arts and entertainment find the section that says best local podcast which means don't do all those dashes and slashes just go click with your with your eyes and your mouth you know walking and, and sure, stuff like that and walking yeah and then type in it's always sunny in chief's kingdom please and thank you you know We've really botched this, but we Lots have 24 hours to make it right. And we really appreciate it if you guys would nominate us. Um, you know, we're probably going to take a year off this year. We're going to hit it hard next year. This is going to be like the uh, Super Bowl hangover a little bit for us. And uh, that's fine. You know, we we lost the Super Bowl last year. We're not going to make the playoffs this year because we forgot to tell you guys to vote. And then next year, we're going to win it all. So it's going to be great. I'm Austin. You can find me on Twitter at RealBirdLawyer. Him at Taylor underscore Wit. We're brought to you by Arrowhead Report, si.com slash NFL slash Chiefs at Arrowhead Report. Pigskin Podcast Network at PigskinPodNet. You can get your Always Sunny in Chiefs Kingdom merch through our friends at DabBod, DabBodT.com, on Twitter at DabBodT. We also have our promotion going on still with Underdog Fantasy. If you use our promo code Sunny, S-U-N-N-Y, you can get a matching deposit in your Underdog Fantasy account of up to $100 matching, which means if you put in $100, you get $100 free. That gives you, Taylor? $100. No, $200. it gives you $200. It gives you $100. You already had the $100. Okay. I was a All little, right. well, yeah. You it then bring, have 200 It total. brings you to $200, <laughs> yes. and you can spend that $200 doing daily fantasy drafts in Underdog Fantasy on the Underdog Fantasy app. It is great. I've been grinding the drafts. It's draft season. Get out there. Use our promo code. Celebrates us a little bit. We love that. And thanks to Pigskin Podcast Network. We we always shout them out. We always give them the at on there. But they uh, provided us with a very special guest today. Taylor, if you want to tease that a little bit. 
Yeah, we are going to be talking to Kevin Bryant, who is a very interesting get for us. He is a former um, Army veteran, and he worked for the Department of Defense. But more importantly for our show, he is the author of a book that just released called Spies on the Sidelines, the high-stakes world of NFL espionage. So we are going to talk to him about all the different ways that the Broncos cheated the, the Chiefs and everyone else out of stuff in the 90s and the Patriots and how horrible they've been. It's going to be great. It's going to be a great time. It is going to be a great time, and we are going to get into that in just a minute. But before we do that, we have to talk about the So we got a lot of news to cover, and we're going to break it down into our regular news and then our training camp news. Now, technically, since the Chiefs are at training camp, any Chiefs-related news is sort of training camp tangential. But I've sort of separated the news segment into our regular news and then like our training camp hype discussion segment so we're going to start with the news 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 segment we did the countdown okay and that starts with a surprise signing by the chiefs on wednesday carlos dunlap one year up to eight million dollars he's 33 years old eight and a half sacks last year with seattle he played 38 percent of the defensive snaps i mean he's old but all indications are he can still play and boy did the chiefs need some edge rusher help uh, yeah, you know, it's it's fun. It's a, it's a He's an older guy, kind of like a Terrell Suggs mold where he's not going to do much harm uh, at all. And, you know, he's had some pretty good success even as an older edge rusher in the NFL. And so um, he's a guy that I think, you know, the Chiefs probably feel pretty good about bringing in and just plugging in right away as a role player on that D-line. And like you said, you know, they need the help. They need the bodies. They need they need more edge rushers than just Frank Clark. Like, that's not going to cut it. And, you know, Karloftis is fun, but he's a rookie. They've got to get guys in there that know how to get to the quarterback. And I think it's, I think it's fun. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Carlos Dunlap is he's a big guy. He's six foot six. He's 350, I think. He's yeah. huge. He's a monster. Huge. And you know, speed deteriorates with age, but you know what you gain <laughs> in losing speed is man, old man strength. strength. That's yes. right. Old yeah, man strength. Sure. And Carlos Dunlap still has his old man strength. If yeah. anything, his old man strength is is gaining as he gets older. <laughs> By the day. As, <laughs> as he gets older, he's gaining more old man strength. And when you brought up Terrell Suggs, like that's the thing that – like the first phrase that enters my mind when I think about Terrell Suggs and his brief tenure with the Chiefs and winning a Super Bowl ring is old man strength. Carlos yeah. Dunlap last year, 35 total quarterback pressures. He did that on 309 pass rush snaps. That is an 11.1% pressure rate. That is better than Frank Clark, who had a 10.1% pressure rate. It's better than Melvin Ingram, who with the Chiefs had a 9.7% pressure rate. According to Pro Football Focus, and obviously they chart pressures a little bit differently than some other places do, that's a little bit subjective, but the league average for an edge rusher is about 10.5% pressures to total pass rushing snaps. That means that Carlos Dunlap last year was above average. It also means that the two best pass rushers on the Chiefs last year, Frank Clark and Melvin Ingram, were below average. So mm-hmm. do the math there. Um, it's a valuable addition for the Chiefs. He can still get after it. And even if, as a rotational player, a guy that's going to play maybe 35, 40% of the snaps, you know, that might translate into seven, eight, nine sacks, which for this team would be an extremely valuable contribution. And he probably is going to give Frank Clark a breather, which seems to be good in Frank Clark's aging years. 
where yeah. he doesn't seem to be as uh, sharp as he once was. And maybe yeah. maybe for him not being on the field all the time, that could give him some extra snap when he's out there. You know, I don't know a whole lot about sharks, Taylor, but I think they're made out of cartilage. Yes. And I don't think that cartilage gets more flexible uh, as it ages. And so, you know, Mr. Mm. Shark... Uh, I think is uh, probably in decline and we'll talk about, we'll talk about Mr. Shark when we get to the training camp news segment. But first we have to talk about some sad news. RIP pour one out for Justin Ross, play kiss from a rose and play him off. He was our hype train. He was our crush. He's placed on the injured reserve (laughs) and he's out for the year. It's um, it's tragic because obviously we heard when Justin Ross was drafted that he was healthy, that he had been medically cleared by the Chiefs. We saw him on the field for rookie minicamp and OTAs and saw him make a couple of highlight reel catches. And now Andy Reid says Justin Ross had a foot surgery to essentially redo the surgery he had previously had on that foot when he broke it playing for Clemson and then played on it. We talked about this after he signed with the Chiefs as an undrafted free agent, played through that, played part of his last season at Clemson on a broken foot, had surgery on that foot, and now has had surgery to go in and clean that up and correct whatever those doctors at Clemson did wrong. The good news is, right, exactly, right. You can't trust them. You know, it's it's barely even legitimate medical science. They (laughs) They probably stitched him up with alligator teeth. Sure, they probably did and uh, rubbed some dirt on it, which probably (laughs) caused it to get infected. You know, we... um, we really are lucky. We're fortunate in Kansas City. We do have a really good medical staff working with the Chiefs. And obviously, um, I don't know who exactly had the surgery with, but I'm sure that the Chiefs were fully apprised of that situation. It sounded like when Andy came in and his presser that everything went well and everything went kind of as expected. It's a little bit curious to me that, I mean, like, I'm not clear if this was the plan all along, because if this was the plan all along, it seems like they probably wouldn't have put him out on the field for minicamp and OTAs. I don't know. It's a little bit strange to me, but I want to get your opinion on it. Yeah, I think that if I were to kind of guess at what their plan was, first of all, they knew with the three-year deal right up front that this was going to be a long-term situation. They knew that they weren't taking a one-year flyer on the guy, which makes me feel a lot better seeing that he was placed on IR and he's going to be out for the year, but knowing that the Chiefs already brought him in for a three-year undrafted free agent deal just kind of tells me that that was always in the back of their mind as a possibility. Now, what they could have done is they could have said, Hey, we know your foot's not in the best shape. What we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to start you off very light, little running, little catching, little no pads, you know, just out there jogging with the guys and see what you want. Uh, just give us a couple of hype videos. Just give us a couple of hype videos, pop that shirt off, whatever you got to do. And what they decided was that, okay, you know, clearly either they, either they kept, x-raying it or whatever and and kept an eye on the foot or they asked Justin how he felt either way they came to the medical conclusion that early on in this process they wanted to go ahead and wipe his ear and get the foot fixed up and cleaned up and ready to go for next year and you know you're going to build some rust by not being out there again taking live bullets Um, you know he's clearly missed a lot of time now especially with this year coming up it's going to be next year when he gets out there it's going to be a long time since he played meaningful football but at the same time the health is is so important and especially with all the stuff that he's gone through already you just didn't want to risk him doing something that could potentially end his career 
hurt his mobility in life moving forward, all that stuff. So they are being extra cautious with a guy that needs you, you need to be extra cautious with. Um, I am completely let down as a Justin Ross hype train conductor. I was as on board as you can be. I have him in multiple fantasy leagues. I have him, you know, I mean, Justin Ross was going to be the guy. He was going to be wide receiver one, and he was going to go out there and and be the Disney story that everyone wanted sure. him to be. But it, do, it doesn't happen this year. It doesn't mean it can't happen in the future. I'm still going to conduct the Justin Ross hype train this time next year. I will be full steam ahead. But until that time, we will wait patiently for his return. It is a little bit of a positive because I think that you know, we've been talking on this show for months now about the wide receiver room. We're going to talk about it more today now that we have the first week of training camp in the books. It was going to be a little bit tricky for him to make the team. And yeah, it was. that's because, number one, obviously the injury history may be putting him behind the eight ball a little bit. Number two, you know, he he's not a guy that you, even if you could, even if he could play special teams, that you would want to risk on special teams. So given that, you know, that situation, I think it makes sense for the Chiefs to pull this off. Now, by putting him on the IR, they have guaranteed that nobody's going to be able to poach him off the practice squad. He's yep. not going to be able to be swiped by another team. He's going to be a Chief next year. And next year, you know, Josh Gordon's probably gone. You certainly have, um, obviously, Juju Smith-Schuster, we hope, is maybe going to stick around. But he's on a one-year deal. You, mm -hmm. you never know. There's going to be more opportunity for him to make the roster as a pure wide receiver Hard next season. Yeah, Hardman, Hardman is in the last year of his contract, and he certainly could be gone. There's going to be more opportunity for him to make the roster probably next year. This guarantees that he comes into the offseason program next year, you know, as a sophomore, having had a year to learn the playbook, not on the field necessarily, but at least to go through it and, yeah. you know, have access be to Be on the test. roster. Yep. It's yep. going to give him the most opportunity to be in a position to succeed in his second year, which will end up being his first year in the NFL. It's disappointing, but I think I can see a path forward. The future is bright, maybe, for Justin Ross. It's certainly sunny. <laughs> Speaking of players that are currently not practicing, we have three players on the pup list. I will say first, Clyde Edwards-Alaire was on the pup list. That's mm -hmm. physically unable to perform, for those of you that are not familiar with it, for one day. And yeah. in the one day that Clyde Edwards-Alaire was on the pup list, he broke Twitter. I mean, people had oh, the wildest... He's cut the wildest takes about Clyde Edwards Lair. Yeah. And, you know, he's a polarizing player. We certainly have said our fair share about Clyde, but he is off the pup after a day and ready to go. Don't really know what the deal was there. There are three players still on the pup list. They all recently had surgery or had surgery this off season. Rashad Fenton on his shoulder, Lucas Niang, of course, on his knee after that ghastly injury against the Bengals late in the year last year. And sadly, mm. Prince Prince Tagawanogo, the prince that was promised, he <laughs> is also recovering from a surgery, and he is on the physically unable to perform list. So it sounds like none of these guys are that close to returning to practice, which especially for Prince Tagawanogo, with us being the, the presidents, the Prince Tagawanogo fan club, a little bit yeah. disappointing. Um, you know, with, uh, with Rashad Fenton, it's probably not a huge deal for him as long as he's going to be ready for week one because the Chiefs know what he can do. And they have a lot of DBs in this rookie class that need to get reps in training yeah. camp to get them yeah. ready for the season. But Niang and Prince Tegawanogo, that that hurts. Well, and it especially hurts with the Brown situation. I mean, Tegawanogo had a bit of an outside shot, again, maybe as the presidents of the fan club, maybe not, but had an outside shot of being the day one left tackle with 
Orlando Brown holding out. If things shook out a certain way, obviously with him being injured, that is at huge risk or maybe even completely wiped off the board here. And Lucas Yang, you know, both of these guys being tackles on a team that has one tackle holding out and two tackles hurt. I mean, yeah. you're getting pretty thin at both yeah. edges in a, you know, a league and a division and a conference that has monster edge rushers every single week. Um, you know, you've got to be stout along that line, uh, not only from the the Super Bowl PTSD that we all have, but just in general, week in and week out. You know, the Chiefs worked their asses off to rebuild this offensive line after 2021. And we'll see, I guess, after 2020, the 2021 Super Bowl. I hate that the NFL wraps yes. the calendar around right. December and January. However, um, you know, they've got to get these guys up to speed ASAP. Yeah, they do. And that sort of transitions us into our last bit of news news before we get into training camp news. And that's Orlando Brown Jr. He has not reported to training camp. When Andy Reid conducted his opening presser, he did not know when he would be reporting to training camp or if he would be reporting to training camp. And I, I, we just covered this in the last episode. There's really not any reason for him to report in the sense that he's not missing any money right now he's not you know they're not going to he's not losing any money by not showing up if he doesn't he show up sign the franchise because he hasn't signed the franchise tender as long as he shows up for week one and plays in week one he's going to make all the money that he's scheduled to make for this year so in that sense like he has no incentive to show up in the other sense which is that he is playing on the franchise tag and in order for him to get the deal that he wants next year which is the only time that he can get the deal because right now he's playing on the tag or he's not playing this year. Those are his only two options. To me, the best option for him is to show up to camp and be in the best position to have the best year that he can possibly have. To me, and I know in the eyes of Andy Reid and the coaching staff, the best way for him to position himself to do that is to be at camp. And he's not here. What is he Absolutely. Doing? Absolutely. He's blowing it, basically. I mean, if you think about his risks and rewards here and the worst case scenarios and the best case scenarios, you know, his best case scenario, as you said, is to negotiate a mega deal at the end of this year to negotiate a long-term contract, be it with the chiefs or with another team. That part doesn't really matter. What matters to him is that he is going to go back to the negotiating table next off season. And if he goes back there and he held out of, the entire 2022 season, or if he held out a camp and then comes in not in shape or doesn't know, you know, certain plays or is not in sync with the the line or whatever, and he struggles on the field in 2022. I mean, that's costing him millions, tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. By, by not being the best version of himself on the field that he can be. And if he's trying to make money, which the only way, the only reason that he does anything that he's done up until this point is to maximize money. Like there's no, the chiefs didn't burn him or, you know, there's no relationship issues or anything like that. It's all been based on what he feels he deserves money wise. Well then dude, get out there and play good football. That's the only way you're going to make a lot of money. And you're not going to do that by missing all of game. Right. It's, it's a perplexing situation to me. And you know, the other, the other issue, um, kind of the elephant in the room a little bit is that, you know, he's a bigger guy. Uh, he, he did not perform well at the NFL combine, like famously poor showing at the NFL combine. And, you know, there have been some issues maybe, I mean, he's a big guy with his conditioning and, you know, 
I think for me, the biggest worry is not that he can't, you know, stay in shape and get in shape to play working out on his own, but boy, I just, I'm, I'm worried that he is going to show up week one and the chiefs are going to put him on the field and he's going to tear something. And, And that would be catastrophic for his future earnings. I mean, he just, Yep. I just, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't know if it's because his agent is giving him bad advice. I really just don't understand it. So you're saying the elephant in the room is Orlando Brown Jr. Oh, let's get into training camp news. Taylor, we have to start with the offense because we like offense better. It's more interesting. <laughs> it's more fun. It's uh, it's sexier. And I want to start with the sexiest group of all, which is the wide receivers, obviously. We have to talk about the wide receiver room, because this is something that we've been discussing for months, really since the draft, really since Tyree kill was traded before the draft. Mm -hmm. We talked last week about how this was our number one camp battle that we're most interested in. And so far, based on the early returns from the first week of camp with the chiefs, the guys who were locks to make the roster have seemingly showed why they are locks to make the roster. That would be second round pick sky Moore. It would be Juju Smith Schuster, Marquez Valdez, Scanling and Nicole Hartman. And, then after that, it's kind of a little bit of a question mark. Let's start with Sky Moore because I feel like you and I have been guilty, yeah, of underhyping Sky Moore yeah. because of our love for Justin Ross. Couldn't agree more. And that stops now because number one, <laughs> Justin Ross is on the high heart. We have no choice. <laughs> we have no choice. We can no longer hype Justin Ross for the 2022 NFL football season, but. We can hype the Chiefs' second-round pick, who actually was drafted by the Chiefs, Sky Moore. Nick Jacobs uh, on Twitter. I'll just say this now. After watching two days of practice, the coach's film doesn't do justice to what Sky Moore does on a football field in person. The dude, capitalized, is so much fun to watch. The way he competes and tags the ball, hashtag Chiefs. Now, if you guys know Nick Jacobs, you... One thing that you have to understand about Nick is that Nick is not a guy to manufacture hype or praise. He's very matter of fact. He's very understated a lot of the time. This tweet came out two days into training camp, and it really just put me on my ass because this is a, I mean, it's a very surprising tweet to get from Nick. He's a very, again, like a Sports very steady guy. KSHB, yes. For those who don't know him. Yes. I can't recall him ever gushing about a player like this this early in camp. And it's not just Nick Jacobs. It, it feels like the Sky Moore hype is is building out of control. Well, that is always fun. The sky's the limit with that kid and the <laughs> offense. I mean, that we're going to hear that for his whole career. But uh, there was a great diving catch that he had earlier. There have been a couple good diving catch highlights so far. Oh, from we're going to talk camp. about it. Yeah, yeah. Juju had a great one. Uh, but – the the more hype has to be um has to feel good for Brett Veach and for the you know the the whole front office that they had a big 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 probably the you know the most important pick um maybe even more important than their first round picks i felt like sure. the bringing in right. the wide right receiver. wide receiver the right guy was super 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 important for this team's success and they've got to feel good that he's out there impressing and looking looking dangerous yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because we've seen, obviously, uh, just clips and we don't get to see every rep from training camp. And we also don't know, you know, what all these guys are working on every time they're out there. But he uh, in one clip that we saw absolutely roasted DeAndre Baker in a one on one rep on the outside. You can't take too much away from, you know, 
who's winning one-on-one reps because you don't know what the players necessarily are working on or what, what coverage they're supposed to be playing. But I mean, he just dusted Deandre Baker and he was lined up outside on that play. We've seen him in the clips that I've seen lined up all over the formation. I saw a clip of him taking a wide receiver screen and moving it up there. And Juju Smith-Schuster, who obviously is, uh, is in the wide receiver room as well said on Wednesday, he's going to help us a lot inside, outside, I could see him playing running back too, which is a really random thing to say. I, I just like, I, I haven't seen any reps of Sky Moore lining up at running back. He's not the guy who, he's not the guy who strikes you as a Debo Samuel type because he does not have Debo Samuel's body, right? Debo is large and Sky Moore is relatively small, but you know, I think it's, I think it's significant that we are seeing him get you know all these different looks across the formation whether it be you know inside outside screens potentially you know getting handoffs in the backfield that to me for a rookie coming from a small school program indicates that he is picking things up i agree and really my takeaway when juju said he could see him playing running back was more about i could see him being able to play running back not necessarily that the chiefs are going to do it but like him him trying to you know, elaborate on what has been impressive to him about Sky Moore. He's saying like, man, when this kid has the ball, he scoots and he's got, he's got good bursts. He's got good moves. I can see him playing running back, you know, like I could see him being successful at that type of position. So um, I wouldn't, you know, maybe necessarily expect the chiefs to ever line Sky Moore up at running back, maybe at least early on in his career, but it's a great praise from Juju saying like, this kid's got it. You know, he's, he's impressed so far. Speaking of Juju, we got to talk about Juju because if there's been one single player that has dominated the highlight reels from yeah. the first week of training camp, it's Juju Smith-Schuster. He had, you alluded to it, a great diving catch deep downfield early in the week. He had a contested catch touchdown for, uh, you know, a contested catch for a touchdown working against uh, rookie Josh Williams today. Tight coverage from Josh Williams today. And Josh Williams, we'll talk about him. Bigger guy. Mm-hmm. We've seen highlights of him running crossers. We've seen him on out routes. We've seen him deep over the middle. He's making plays from seemingly everywhere in the formation. And that's what we wanted to see from him when we signed him. When we had that one glorious fleeting moment of a podcast in the three days before Tyree Kill was traded, we were going nuts about Juju and his ability to play all over the formation and how awesome it was going to be. It's still going to be awesome. It's just not going to (laughs) be as awesome as if Tyree Kill was also out there. Ugh. Yeah, he's really fun in his versatility, and it's it's good to see that the Chiefs are testing that versatility. They probably will not play him again like Sky Moore. They probably won't play him all over the place, but they will figure out in camp which places they can play him in, and they'll play him in every place that they feel comfortable playing him. And I, I just really like his role. I really like him being a veteran wide receiver that has both the physicality to play over the middle and you know, the skill set to do some of the the nuanced kind of, um, you know, not necessarily as physical, but like the 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 brainiac type of plays from sure, wide receivers. I mean, he's he's certainly got the whole package and it's just really fun. I love seeing a number nine out there catching bat passes. I don't know what it is about these new numbers, sure. but they just crack me up uh, as a 
random ADD aside, I saw Mark Ingram is going to become the first player to ever wear four different numbers with one team when he changed his numbers That's, again with the Saints. These new numbers are out of control. But yeah, Juju's uh, he's looking good, and I love that the team is emphasizing him in the highlights. That's another thing that you love to see with a big um, addition in the offseason sure. is you love to just feed the fans as as on that early. And you love to say, hey, you remember that? awesome guy that we were really excited about you know signing as a wide receiver like watch this he's actually really good and that's got me as as hyped as anything else yeah and i think we i mean i think we called this right like i'm gonna yeah. give us some credit here yeah. like we, people were saying that juju you know he was a pigeonholed into the slot he can't play outside well okay turns out that that might have been a ben roethlisberger problem and a ben roethlisberger arm strength problem particularly yeah we've seen Patrick Mahomes on the play that he made the diving catch. I mean, Mahomes, the pocket gets blown up and Mahomes is literally on his back foot. Like he's backpedaling and he just says, fuck it. Juju's down there somewhere and he throws it and Juju lays out for the catch down the field. I mean, it's a great play. I can't wait to see it on Sundays. It's going to be awesome. Turning to Marquez Valdez-Scantling, he's had a little bit of a quieter week than certainly the Juju and Sky Moore, who have just been blowing up on social media. The hype yeah. trains for them are out of control. But his usage, and that's really what we're looking for early in camp, seems to be more or less what we expected. He's lining up outside. He's making plays downfield. He's been utilized in the red zone, which is something that, you know, obviously with his his height, I don't want to say his size because he's sure. not. He's not a huge he's, guy. He's, he's a tall not a target. guy, but he's tall. I mean, he's mm -hmm. six foot four. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something that I feel like maybe he was a little bit underutilized in that, you know, role with the Packers. Now, obviously, they had Devontae Adams, and Devontae Adams is going to be your your red zone threat because he can get open. They had, you know, Robert Tanyan had a year where he was a pretty, pretty monstrous threat in the red zone. But I'm yeah. just I'm really curious to see um, because as we talked about, you know, in the, the beginning of the offseason. This is a different sized wide receiver unit than the Chiefs are used to. And it sounds like, you know, based on early returns from red zone drills, that they're leaning into that yeah. in the red zone. Yeah, it's really exciting to have these 6'4 guys. Um, it's something that Patrick Mahomes, I'm sure, is going to be more excited about than anybody to be able to get a higher. So to me, kind of a, a street ball mentality, which I know what's been going around with Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> sure. But he does excel in that situation. And you know, if you're running for your life and trying to make a play, the most important, you know, attribute of the player you're throwing to is probably size over anything else. And right. for him to be able to maybe do like a little back foot loft type of, you know, Patrick Mahomes throw and know that, hey, my guy's 6'4". Like, I'm I'm fine with getting this up in the area and he's going to jump up and get it more likely than not. Like, it, it really does to me lean into Patrick Mahomes' strengths. And, of course, his strengths are also in the pocket. Yes, I hear you all. Um, but when he gets going like that, um, I'm really excited about a guy like MVS that can not only can he turn on a dime and burn somebody that's not, you know, because if Patrick Mahomes is running around, you're going to lose your your wide receiver if you're defending. Like, you just can't defend those guys for that you long. You can't cover for eight seconds. With a mobile quarterback, you can't do it. And so just like Tyreek Hill always used to get free from people because – Patrick Mahomes was running around, you know, then he'd still have to find that little guy running down there and still be able to put it on a dime. Now he's got tall, gigantic MVS that he could just look down there or Juju or some of these other guys. So uh, it is really exciting for the way that I believe Patrick Mahomes excels playing quarterback and MVS, 
you know, they had Aaron Jones running in Green Bay when they would get in the red zone. Like you said, they had all those targets. I don't think they needed him to be a red zone target. And so therefore he kind of wasn't, but the Chiefs will sure need him. And I, I really think he'll be able to, to come in and do that for him. Just to uh, close the loop on that uh, Mahomes street ball thing, for those of you that don't know what we're talking about there, um, there was uh, the annual, you know, quarterback rankings that came out, an anonymous uh, defensive assistant coordinator. It's not clear exactly what it's definitely Jack Del Rio. It's definitely Jack. It probably is Jack Del Rio. But in any case, this anonymous person basically said that Mahomes, once he gets past his first read, is scrambling and playing street ball. Uh, just wanted to say really quickly, um, PFF put this out two days ago. <laughs> uh, Patrick Mahomes on throws past his first read since 2018, which obviously was his first year as the starter. Uh, his PFF grade is 91.0. That ranks first in the NFL. 4,498 passing yards. That is also first in the NFL. 39 passing touchdowns. That is also first in the NFL. So actually, mm-hmm. he's the best quarterback in the NFL after he gets past his first read. Jack. <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about Josh Gordon. So quiet week from him too. Uh, he was out early in the week with an excuse. I didn't see what exactly it was that he was excused for, but with Justin Ross going to the IR, it feels like Josh Gordon benefits the most from that move, because as we've talked about throughout the off season, I mean, those are two guys that, you know, they're not necessarily known commodities to the chiefs. They both have a lot of potential just in terms of their physical ability. And Josh Gordon, obviously it's been a long time since he's shown that on the football field, but he's capable of it. And neither of those guys were going to play special teams. Well, now one of those guys is on IR. He's not going to make the team. I feel like this opens up a door for Josh Gordon. Is he going to walk through the door and take the start, take the roster spot? Yeah. Um, you know, they, like you said, they are very similar players in their kind of their stories, not necessarily, you know, age and all that stuff, but the fact that they are, they were both, you know, injury prone guys that you, you could squint and you could see everything going perfect for them and them dominating in the NFL. If everything went right. Sure. But there really, as you said, wasn't enough roster room to kind of take two flyers on guys like that. You could take one pretty easily. And, you know, if you can find a way to do what the chiefs did and stash one of them on IR, then you can look at the other guy as a pretty likely candidate to make the roster. I do think that if Justin Ross in an alternate world was completely healthy and catching and looking great and all that stuff. I think he could have very easily taken Josh Gordon's spot on this roster. And the Chiefs could have said, ah, you know, we got a we got a guy kind of like you, but he's like what five, six years younger, and you know, we feel good about it. But the way it is now, yeah, I think with Josh Gordon being one of the longest tenured wide receivers in this room, which is sure. insane. It's McCole Hardman and then Josh Gordon. Right. And right. I I do think that uh, he has the opportunity. He's been given opportunity after opportunity in his recent NFL life. He's just got to snag it, and he's got to go out there and, and take that roster spot, and here's hoping he does. The other guys in the room, you know, we mentioned McCole Hardman off the bat. Uh, not a lot of buzz around him this week. I think that's maybe to be expected, considering that somehow he is the most known quantity in the wide receiver room. Like, mm-hmm which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because I still don't really know what to think about McCall Hardman, but not a whole lot of buzz around him in the first week of camp. Corey Coleman is a guy that is a little bit interesting because he's been getting some work on punt returns and, you know, former first round pick with the Browns, one of the many first round picks that busted with the Browns yeah, over the last several years, decades, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
he's been getting some work on punt returns, and you wonder if he might be in the mix for the honorary Marcus Kemp wide receiver six spot, <laughs> which is the guy that's going to like, you know, play special teams for you and, you know, catch like three balls on the season for right. whatever, 16 yards, right. no touchdowns. Could yeah, be interesting. Yeah. Corey Coleman is an interesting guy. And again, Veach and the front office have shown that they are not afraid to take chances on first round talent. That's something that if a guy has ever been drafted in the first and then fell out with their team, the chiefs are looking at him and they're, they're usually looking at him pretty hard. And uh, he's another guy that he's got some tools. And if, if those tools can translate, then uh, he could be a nice little depth piece. Not much more than that, but um, I do like him on the roster if he makes it. Let's talk about the offensive line. And we we talked about the offensive line a little bit, obviously, out, out of the jump in the, the actual news segment because Chiefs are a little bit thin at offensive line. Prince Seguinogo and Lucas Niang are both on the pup. They obviously both play the tackle position and are guys that, you know, could potentially have been options at either tackle spot, right? So yeah. Orlando Brown Jr., the Chiefs left tackle last season, not present. Andy Reid, despite specifically mentioning by name Joe Tooney in his opening presser and saying, you know, specifically mentioning Joe Tooney as a possible fill-in at left tackle for Orlando Brown, backtracked the following day, said he probably won't play there right now. So right now at left tackle, the Chiefs are rotating a group of guys. And the two guys that I've seen that have gotten first, second team reps are Jerron Christian, who formerly was with the Texans, you know, a big guy, a guy who has quite a bit of starting experience with the Texans over the last couple of years and has played pretty well in stretches. He's been getting the second team reps and a different guy from the Texans, Roger Johnson, who is a former fifth round pick with six career starts, all of which came with the Texans, got the first first team reps at left tackle, which is bizarre to me. I mean, you've got two guys that used to play for the same team. One of them got a ton more playing time and had a better draft pedigree and frankly just looks like a better player. And, it and the was other guy Johnson from... <laughs> that got the first team reps. Rod Johnson, the guy Rod from Miami Johnson. Vice. Yeah, it's uh it is interesting and and I don't know what to make of early on, early early on like depth chart decisions. And sure. it could be that they kind of had a better idea already of what Jerron Christian could bring because they had more tape on him. They, they clearly, you know, they like him. And so maybe they just thought like, okay, well, we'll see if we throw Roderick Johnson in with all these other starters on, you know, the first team reps, we'll see if he looks out of his element. We'll see if he looks lost or we'll see if we can, if he can swim, if we throw him in the deep end, basically. So it could have been a test for him as much as anything else. And sure. we'll see how the, how the depth chart, kind of materializes throughout camp. If they continue to list him high on the depth chart, they clearly then really, we know they really like him, or maybe there's a big disappointment with Gron Christian. And maybe they just decide like, man, that we brought this guy in and that dude sucks. We got to try anyone else there we can. So, sure. you know, it could be, it could be damning about Christian or it could be praise for Johnson. We'll just have to see kind of how that develops. Yeah. And we don't know when, obviously when Orlando Brown Jr. is going to be back, you got to think that, you know, I mean, the Chiefs have really played their cards pretty close to their vest as far as what the what the plan week one would be. If yeah. for some reason, God forbid, that Orlando Brown Jr. is getting atrocious advice, yeah. decides he's Sounds not like going to show up. Is. Decides he's not going to show up for week one. 
I I don't know that we can can really say based on what we've seen the first week of camp who is going to be the Chiefs' left tackle if it's not Orlando Brown Jr. on the franchise tag in Week One. At right tackle, uh, we had a conversation about you know the offensive line a couple weeks ago when Orlando did not sign a long term extension, and we both kind of had Andrew Wiley pegged as the first guy you know at the right tackle spot, and he is indeed running with the first team. He's the guy that's getting the first team reps out there. Darian Kennard, their late round pick. I think he was a sixth rounder. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm, uh, Darian Kennard. Fifth, maybe was my guess. Oh, that's right. I, I think that is right. Yeah, fifth, fifth round pick. You're right. Yeah. Darian Kennard out of Kentucky, uh, running with the second team. He obviously played right tackle his last three seasons um, with Kentucky in college, and he's running with the second team, which makes sense. You know, Brett Beach said they would give him a look at right tackle, even though you know his footwork in particular would suggest that maybe he'd stick at guard, but Lucas Niang's on the pup list. So, you know, here we are. Darren Kennard getting second team reps. Andrew Wiley uh, running with the first team. And that's four tackles, and that's it. That's yeah. two left tackles, two sure. right tackles, no depth after that. Nobody really that has a starter. Uh, Andrew Wiley has starter pedigree. He started a Super Bowl. He's a veteran. Yeah, the other he's, three guys, he's had good stretches of right tackle. He play. has. No, yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly fine well. with Andrew Wiley. As I said last he's week, if, if he ends up being the starting right tackle week one, I'm fine. But – I mean, the other guys are very unproven, and these are your tackles protecting the most important player, the most important human being on the planet. And it just makes me think back to the the Tampa game, and I know I, I harp on that a lot, but like they have got to make sure this tackle situation is under control because it's kind of feels like it's spiraling out. Like, what happens if one of these guys tears their ACL? Sure, like you know, like all these all these are you know the holdout is a huge one because that's a non-injury. That's a that's completely up to Orlando Brown if he's holding out or not. And it's and, it's not clear to me that the Chiefs know what's going to happen with that situation. I agree. Right? Like I I, I I think that they probably would say what they've said regardless of whether they know, but like yeah. this is whenever you're getting into a situation where the player is doing something that rationally does not make sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, the sense that I get, like this is the sense that I got when Le'Veon Bell did what he did, right? Is that the, <laughs> yeah. is, I mean, yeah. if you remember Anything like, is the, weekly, <laughs> the weekly reports, right? Like you would get the reports from, you know, Ian Rappaport and Adam Schefter and they'd be like, I mean, nobody really knows in the locker room. Nobody in the organization knows what's going on. Literally, like, people are, like, reading Le'Veon's tweets to see if they can get any clues about whether he's going to fucking show up for work next week. Right. That's kind of how this situation strikes me, which I is agree. not ideal. Yeah, Orlando Brown seems kind of like a loose cannon, like a, yeah. a, a little uh, unpredictable, kind of a wild card situation. We might just yeah. have to give him an honorary wild card nomination every week next year until he shows up. Sure, and people making irrational decisions benefits no one, as <laughs> as the gang points out uh, in It's Always Sunny. We got to do a special shout out, uh, not even a position group, but a player, Jody Fortson. First season. First team all training camp hype player. Yeah. Like literally, like if there was of an all time. award. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like if you had a ring of honor specifically for training camp hype players for the Chiefs, I mean Jody Fortson's like first ballot, he's in. And he's back. He's back at it. He looks healthy. He's <laughs> making plays. Yeah. There's a ton of buzz around him. And listen, it seems like Jody's a really good guy. And I don't doubt that a lot of this is like I don't want to say wish casting because I'm not saying that these plays didn't happen. I've seen the video of some of them. He's looked yeah. good out there, but you've seen that before. Yeah. People, people want him to be successful and I want him to be successful and you want him to be successful. And yeah. you know what? Like maybe it's just hype. Maybe it's just buzz, but 
he looked good last year and he looks good in camp and that's better than the opposite right and he's six six like get him out there you know like he's he's awesome uh i find it funny i always kind of go back and forth between joe and jordy because he his his like pro football references listed i know joe 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 Fortson. And I've I've heard him, you know, his full name is Joseph Demarius Fortson. So his name is Joe, but he goes by Jody. I just find it fun. Um, He is great. And I really, really hope he catches a lot of balls this year because, damn, that kid has waited a long time. All right. I know this isn't as fun. I know it isn't as sexy. Hold on. Let me just. um, Yeah. Well, I actually was just about to pop a roast, quick roast on a Broncos fan that was uh, talking about the Elway thread. But we we, we have a podcast to do. I can't be during the podcast. It's Friday night. It's hot up here. You know, getting (laughs) hot about it. And somebody tagged me and he's like, you guys are still going on about this two years later. Yes, bitch. Yeah. Because John Elway is still bad. And people think that he's good. He will be bad forever. So we will talk about it forever. We will talk about it as long as we need to talk about it until it becomes a truth universally acknowledged. Until John Elway is kicked out of the Hall of Fame and given his just desserts. I'm still hot about it. Let's talk about the defense. And let's talk about the group that we were really interested in when we kind of broke down our training camp preview, our hype preview a couple weeks ago. That's the defensive backs. So the takeaways from week one to me, it seems like Legereus Sneed, great player in his rookie year, struggled a little bit since then, little little inconsistent since then. Seems like he's been playing more inside. When the Chiefs are in nickel with three cornerbacks on the field, he has been playing inside. He's the guy kicking inside. Trent McDuffie and Joshua Williams are getting most of the run outside. This is kind of anecdotal to me a little bit, but the plays that I've seen of him playing outside in camp, he's gotten roasted a couple of times. Now, I'm not saying that that's every play, but obviously he was playing mostly inside as a rookie, and he was great as a rookie. I mean, he was top-notch. We're doing those redraft the draft, and Legereus Sneed, who was a fourth-round pick, was going in like the top 15. Top when they five, were... I think. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. he was awesome. He was great. So... When he's been playing more outside corner since then, he struggled. Like statistically, his numbers dropped off quite a bit last year. And I don't know if you can read too much into that. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, when you've got three guys on the field, one of whom is Trent McDuffie, who's five foot eleven and yeah. has like third percentile arm length, <laughs> versus Legarius Sneed, who's six one and has, you know, longer arms, it's it's Legarius Sneed who's playing inside and not Trent McDuffie. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, you know, sometimes you think about the competition that they go up against at the various positions. And when you're an NFL DB and you're playing inside, you know, you're going up against slot receivers. And if you're a bigger guy, you can kind of be a little bit more physical. You can get your arms around them. You can do some stuff there that when you're outside, that's where Jamar Chase lives. That's where your sure, alpha right. dog, big, big NFL wide receivers, they're outside. That's DK Metcalf. That's Devontae Adams. That's the big guys. So, like, when they knew that Legereus Sneed was good because they played him inside and he excelled, then they probably thought, kind of like when you have a pitcher in baseball and if he's a reliever and he's mowing people down, you think, like, well, we should try and see if this guy could do this six, seven innings a game. And you move him to a starter. And that's kind of like moving right. a DB to the outside. And sure. you say, like, man, right. if we if he does this stuff to the best of the best out there, right. like, we've got a dog. That's and a and, and maybe Legereus Sneed, you know, struggled from our fan perspective just because instead of going up against slot wide receivers, he was going up against the most freak athletes of all time in the history of the human race. And 
that can that can take a toll on some guys. So I'm interested to see what they if they feel like moving him back inside brings the best Legarius need to the field that they can. And that's what you got to do as a coach. You got to maximize who the player is on the field. And, you know, now they're trying in camp. They're trying McDuffie and Joshua Williams as they're, like you said, kind of the outside uh, DBs there. And they're going to see what they can do on the outside on those really tough boundary, you know, the the big jump balls and stuff like that. They're going to see how they handle that. And if at the end of the day they feel like, yeah, Legereus Need might have struggled a little bit more on the outside, but I still like him as our outside you know, DB, then by the time week one rolls around, we're going to see Snead out there. But it's fun to to move these pieces around and see what it does to these as these DBs and see how they handle it. Yeah. So speaking of the DBs, speaking of McDuffie and Williams, I mean, these are two rookies and a lot of buzz out of them first week at camp. But it feels like more buzz for the fourth round pick from Fayetteville yeah. State than the first yeah. rounder from Washington, which is essentially cornerback you. Right. Yeah. Perhaps this is just a case of differing expectations coming in, but it does seem like Williams is surprising people. And I think it's a really interesting pairing to have both of those guys on the outside because they are completely different physically. Obviously, yes. Williams six foot three, 195 with long arms, McDuffie 5'11, 193. <laughs> so they're they're pretty similar weight-wise. Yeah. But, but Williams is, is is you know, he's got you know long arms, he's he's long, he's big. McDuffie has short arms, 29 and three quarters inches, which again is like in the bottom five percentile or something for arm length for cornerbacks. Yeah, it, it's just interesting. Like it's not a question of and McDuffie was the outlier from from the DBs that the Chiefs took in the draft. They were all bigger DBs bigger corners in particular, except for Trent McDuffie, who was their first pick. Like yeah. that was the guy that they valued more than anybody else. They traded up to get him. They didn't even plan on him being there. Right. And it's just interesting to me to see those two guys out there um, on well, the first team, team reps on the outside. McDuffie's kind of the sky more of the DBs because, sure. you know, you've got these big monsters out as the other wide receivers you brought right. in with MVS right. and Juju, and you've already got Josh Gordon and those guys. And then you draft Sky Moore is your first wide receiver off the board. Who's a littler dude. He's not tiny, but he's certainly not six, four, you know, gigantic. And McDuffie's the same way. You like his ball skills. You like his, you know, pedigree uh, from Washington. You like all that stuff, but he's just not the same mold, especially that Williams is. Williams is basically if you took Sky Moore and just stretched him four inches, like, right. He's, you know, he's the same weight. He's four inches taller and he's got longer arms. It's like you just stretched him out and then you throw him on the football field. And it's it's going to be fun to see how Sky or how I almost called Trent McDuffie Sky more because I was just sure. making that comparison. But it'll be fun to see how Trent handles, you know, a big boy NFL um, matchups and stuff like that. But I think given all the stuff that goes on with Washington and their cornerbacks and stuff, I mean, I think he's as mentally prepared as any draft pick that the chiefs brought in this year. So we'll see if, uh, if he can, you know, translate that to some physicality. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting. And it's safety, which we obviously also identified as kind of a position that we were keeping an eye on third rounder. Brian cook has been getting some first team reps out there. He's been out on the field with Juan Thornhill, which, I mean, you can't read too much into that because Justin Reed's had a couple of injury scares. Thankfully, yeah. nothing serious. He's missed some time. I know he had a, a problem with the heat in St. Joe one day, which is not surprising. Um, no. That's something that, you know, having been out to St. Joe myself just to mm -hmm. observe practice, not actually being out there, working up a sweat, um, doing any kind of physical activity at all. 
that St. Joe heat, it hits different. <laughs> he's he's learning about that. But we know that Spags uh, likes versatile safeties almost to a fault. Like, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't matter if Dan Sorensen can, can do any of the things that, you know, a box safety or a deep safety could do well. No. It's just he can do all those things. <laughs> you know, like if I tell him to go up and line up up there, he'll do it. Right. He won't say, I can't do that. So, you know, it is interesting to see Brian Cook out there with Juan Thornhill. I don't know if that's just a case of, you know, Justin Reed missing some reps out on the field or, you know, if it's Steve Spagnuolo saying like, hey, look, I've got three guys that have, you know, complementary skill sets, but they they can move around a little bit. And I'm just going to kind of get, you know, a feel for, you know, if I put these two DBs on the field, this is what I'm getting, you know, on the back end with the safeties. Um, What do you think? I think I would feel... I would know a lot more about the safety group if Justin Reed was out there doing his thing. He's, sure. the, he's the big free agent acquisition. He signed the three-year, $36 million, I think it was, uh, dollar contract. And he's the guy that the Chiefs have kind of identified as a, as a key piece on defense. And much the way they did the same thing with Tyron Matthew, they're expecting Justin Reed to contribute a lot. And – Without him being part of the equation, I'm just not sure if Brian Cook and Juan Thornhill are just kind of going through the motions and holding down the fort until the Chiefs can actually deploy the safety that they want. And, and you know, we'll see. I do like the talent. Um, I, I've always liked the talent of Juan Thornhill, and I've thought that, as everyone in the kingdom thought, he was criminally underused in his first, uh, especially last year. Um, but... You know, Brian Cook is a guy that I think has gone without a ton of notice just based on kind of some of the other flashiness of some of the other draft picks. I said that, I think, a couple weeks ago already. Yeah. That, that I feel like maybe part of it is just that Brian Cook doesn't have like that one attribute that I go like, oh, that's what the Chiefs need him for. Sure. You know, he, he hits, but uh, he they, hit. brought in, they brought in a ton of guys to hit. Leo Chanel hits, and he sure. hits like the water boy. So, like, you know, I, I don't really know what it is that I'm going to see out of Brian Cook. I'm really excited to see him in an actual NFL game and get a better sense of who he is as a player watching him, you know, take live reps. We have to talk about a certain player. And we have okay. to, you have to end here. You know, it's kind of like uh, we should have sandwiches in the middle so we could do the like the compliment <laughs> sandwich kind of deal. I did not plan this out this way, and I should have planned it out better. But Frank Clark, I guess you do kind of a little bit of compliment sandwich with Frank Clark. Here's the good news: he's been staying after practice to help the rookies. That seems good. Yeah. Um. On the other hand, uh, he looks really small to me. <laughs> really? Yeah. Small. I mean. <laughs> His hair looks small, and I don't mean that as a compliment. And also, do we really want him to be teaching our rookies? No! Like, I I just, like, no disrespect to the guy. He's had a good NFL career, but it has been in steep decline yeah, since, you know what? since two years ago. You know what happened is Brett Veach saw Frank Clark talking to George Karloftis after <laughs> practice, and he said, get me Carlos Dunlap. Yeah. Like, bring in any veteran – they sure. can talk to these guys and actually know what they're talking about. Who's not Frank Clark. And yeah, I mean, we give Clark a lot of crap for obvious reasons and for yeah, justified sure. reasons. I mean, he has been a huge disappointment, but I'm glad that he, at least from, from his perspective is bought in and is staying out. He doesn't have to stay after, you know, he doesn't, he's a veteran. 
He could go right. home. He could right. he could go shoot his Uzis and do all of his other crazy Frank Clark sure. stuff after after it's legal in Missouri. So you know. <laughs> everything's legal in Missouri. But he decides that it's worth it to him to try and be a positive influence and do some stuff that you would think a guy with his kind of checkered decision making would not be doing. So Yes, so I'm pleased that Frank Clark as a dude seems to be in a good spot where he feels like, hey, I can actually yeah. be like a, a positive influence. But we need someone else to be making that positive influence like ASAP. <laughs> sure. Right. Yep, I think that's fair. Well, that's going to close it out for week one of training camp. It's been so amazing to have football back. Like this is to me, I mean, obviously week one's great. Week one of the preseason is great. You know, the first fantasy football day of red zone, you know, watching all the stuff come in. But there's something just absolutely magical about following along with the tweets from the boots on the ground on the first week of training camp. I love it to death. And we're going to have a whole other week of it to go and break down with you guys again next week. The action never ends at DraftKings Sportsbook, especially this summer. With tons of ways to bet on all your favorite sports, you can fuel your fandom and feel the heat of the season like never before. Plus, right now, DraftKings Sportsbook is giving new customers a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's right. Make your first bet up to $1,000, and if it doesn't win, you'll get another shot to cash in. You can throw down at all the major action for baseball, golf, MMA, and more. Plus, with same-game parlays, spreads, money lines, over-unders, props, your betting options feel endless. I know, personally, I've been betting on Formula One on DraftKings and it's been a lot of fun. I hadn't ever really been into it before this summer, but uh, DraftKings is helping me make a little money on my newfound fandom. Best of all, DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TPPN and make your first deposit and get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's promo code TPPN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Joining us now is Kevin Bryant, Army veteran from the Department of Defense and author of Spies on the Sidelines, the high-stakes world of NFL espionage, which is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chegg, through the publisher Rowan and Littlefield. In a couple weeks, it'll be an audio book format. Uh, you can find more information on that at spiesonthesidelines.com. Spies on the Sidelines is the first book to ever explore the permissible and illicit collection techniques NFL teams utilize to gain a game-day advantage over their opponents and the corresponding countermeasures used to defend against these techniques. You can find Kevin on Twitter at Kevin Bryant Author. Kevin, how are you tonight? Oh, great. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. So let's get this out of the way early. I saw you mention that you're a Broncos fan in another interview. We <laughs> Chiefs fans, we must know. Do you consider the verified cheating the Broncos did in the 90s with the salary cap shenanigans, the Vaseline on the jerseys? Is that beyond the scope of your book because it wasn't like espionage? It was just regular cheating? There, there is nothing in my book that pertains to the Broncos. The Broncos do not engage in any <laughs> such uh, duplicitous techniques. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll agree to disagree there. Um, can we hear some anecdotes about the AFC West teams that our listeners may find, you know, entertaining, interesting? Um, I did see that you've got some Al Davis stuff. Let's maybe go ahead of and course, start with him. Davis, what, uh, yeah. what can you tell us about the AFC West and what they've been getting up to? Yeah, a little sneaky Raiders. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So no, in all seriousness, the book has stories from all the NFL teams in there and goes and, uh, spans the entire history of the NFL. So yeah, there's plenty of AFC West stuff in there. So, all right. So if we're kicking it off with the Raiders, um, and Al Davis, so yeah, that guy, man, he was one of, you know, when you're talking about 
teams that that spy in the history of the NFL. So first of all, all teams are engaged in it to some extent, except the Broncos, except the Broncos. (laughs) Right. Because, you know, there are a lot of permissible collection techniques that are out there. Um, So, but, um, you know, there are those coaches, of course, that are willing to cross those, those boundaries that most teams are not willing to go to. Um, to try to get that advantage. And of course, Al Davis and the Raiders were, were one of those. Um, so, you know, you've got everything from Al Davis dressing up as a reporter. Oh, um, I love that. When he was, you know, when he was under, when he was working for um, Sid Gilman, when he was assistant coach with the Chargers. Um, yeah, he dressed up as a reporter, went into another team's locker room and, <laughs> and, and asked the player, Hey, uh, you know, what's the hardest thing for you to defend against? <laughs> and, and the player starts, you know, talking to him and, and sketching everything out on a board. And, wow. um, and, you know, Davis is just sitting there taking notes on all of it. Uh, when one of the coaches walks by and is like, Hey Davis, you know, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, a really good one. How about, yeah. uh, how about any charger juicy stories from that? Well, so Sid Gilman, was um was one of those guys that was willing to per- to to push the boundaries of what went on so absolutely um he actually had a um well <laughs> so the, when the chargers were playing in a championship game against um the i believe it was the boston patriots at the sure. time um, yeah, so the, the championship game was to be played in San Diego and Sid Gilman invited, uh, the head coach, um, to, to train at a military base in San Diego and said, Hey, I've got everything all set up for you. You guys just show up down here. You guys can practice. It'll be all good. And the Patriots coach was like, Oh, that sounds great. Thanks so much. The thing he didn't know was that. Sid Gilman had arranged for a couple of his assistant coaches to dress up as Marines and to sit there and to be assistants for (laughs) the Patriots while they went through uh, their practices. And as a result, they knew everything that the Patriots were going to do. Um, So during the game, it was, it was, it was a ridiculous crushing defeat for the Patriots. Um, Those poor Patriots. yeah, the, you know, the Chargers racked up like 610 yards on them. <laughs> and we're, you know, I mean, we're talking a long time ago. So that, you know, um, so, you know, the score was, I think it was like 51 to 7 or something along that. And the only way they scored was when uh, the Patriots quarterback, I believe, Babe Perilli, um, just designed a play in the huddle. Ah, you know, like, you know, you're drawn. Yeah, when your kid's, you know, drawn in the dirt mm-hmm. and saying, hey, you go do this, you go do this. And that's the only thing that worked because that was the only thing that the Chargers were not expecting and had not been prepared to defend against. Unbelievable. So, so was this the uh, the origin? Like, I understand this was long before Bill Belichick ever became head coach of the Patriots, but I mean, I feel like we have Is their to talk villain about, origin story. Yeah, right. Was this their Joker origin story here? You know, getting spied on by Sid Gilman in whatever the sixties, the seventies, and and then deciding that they were going to pull off, would it be fair to call it Spygate like the 
the most it's like the Watergate, obviously, of NFL cheating scandals. But but how would you sort of describe its place in history? I, I really want to dive into the, the Patriots cheating phenomenon. Like I said, all teams are involved in certain degrees. There's been a long history of teams that are, you know, willing to stretch those boundaries. Um, Spygate. You know, it was it was certainly a I would say a very, um, you know, brazen um, activity by the Patriots because, you know, twice they were warned by the league um, through memos that the videotaping of the signals, opponent signals um, is not permissible. And yet and, and even before the game where they were eventually um, busted um, versus the Jets. Um, you know, the Jets coach called Bill Belichick before the game and said, Hey, I know what goes on because he was a former Patriots assistant coach and said, I'm not going to tolerate this at my home stadium. Um, and so, you know, and Belichick and the Patriots, in spite of that, decided to proceed and go ahead as business as normal. So you know, and this activity went on for six years. Um, I think what a lot of people don't know about this is that the, there was no rule against videotaping other teams' practices. Um, was it no rule and, because it was assumed, or is that permissible? Well, no. As a matter of fact, you know, teams did it, um, and it was considered perfectly legit. But when teams started complaining the season prior, um, then, you know, the, the, the NFL put out, put out memorandums um, saying that, hey, we're, this isn't, you know, we're not, we, this isn't going to be tolerated. Hmm. So for the six years that it took place, um, you know, during much of that time, the, you know, one could argue certainly that, hey, this, that was perfectly, per- perfectly permissible at the time. Um, after the memos came out, clearly it, it was no longer, although it wasn't a rule. It wasn't a bylaw. It was simply in a memo. So maybe maybe Belichick felt a little emboldened that, hey, you know, this isn't really officially a rule per se. I'm sure. It doesn't violate a bylaw. Um, but nonetheless, um, obviously, the league found it um, punishable and, and, took, and took action against the Patriots because of it. You know, what I'm always struck by with Spygate is how the league essentially let the Patriots destroy all of their own evidence. Um, and basically let them just like destroy the tapes, like release them back to the Patriots. And it's been a minute since I've read up on this. So you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, is that, is that weird to you? Is that unusual at all to you? Like, I don't want to get too deep into a conspiracy rabbit hole here, but like what gives? Yeah. So it wasn't the Patriots that destroyed the videotapes. It was the, the, it was NFL. It was the NFL. It was NFL representatives (laughs) that traveled um, to the Patriots headquarters, um, viewed some of the tape at least, and then destroyed it. Um, and so, yes, it is, it is certainly weird. Um, but everything about the, you know, the whole Spygate, I, Spygate was weird. Um, you know, Roger Goodell issued a punishment before an investigation ever took place. Um, you know, the investigation consisted of a couple couple league representatives go into the headquarters and more or less just simply asking the Patriot staff, Hey, what happened? Um, 
which, you know, being an investigator art myself, <laughs> sure. I can tell you that's not really an investigation, right? Kosher, I mean, yeah, yeah. right. I mean, it, it, it's kind of silly and ridiculous. Um, so the NFL, by and large, you know, it's a business, right? So they don't want to air their dirty laundry. Um, this is a big scandal. They simply want it to go away. And that's how they behaved was that, okay, it took place and we're going to have to punish you, the Patriots. But the bottom line is we want to deal with this in the most um, sensitive and non-alerting manner possible so that it raises the least, it brings up the least amount of attention mm -hmm. and it just goes away. That's the bottom line. They just want it to go away. Um, it very much backfired on the NFL because I think everybody who wasn't a Patriots fan wasn't really uh, satisfied. <laughs> too, yeah, well, they weren't satisfied. And that went all the way up to the congressional level. Yeah. Um, you know, there was there was talk about a congressional inquiry into the subject. Um, I want to bring up the NFL in specifically there. Uh, we know the NFL, like you said, they want to maintain an image of this squeaky clean above board you know, sportsmanship at all costs, all that, all that stuff. If a franchise catches another franchise cheating, you know, we had again with the Patriots when the Bengals caught him cheating. Do you yes. feel that it would be more effective for that victim franchise, the victimized franchise to go straight to the press, to leak the details without trying to rely on the NFL to do its own justice? And, you know, like, can these teams trust the shield to enforce lawfulness or are they kind of on their own when stuff like this happens? Well, I will say that the NFL definitely learned some lessons from Spygate. Sure. Um, at least Roger Goodell did. You know, when you take um, Deflategate, for example, the punishment that was issued there, which was certainly, um, you know, every I, I, the consensus opinion is that that was much heavier, um, you know, a heavier punishment for the level of infraction than right. Spygate. Yeah. So... You know, and they hired an independent investigating, uh, an independent investigator, and had a company that came in and weighed in on the scientific evidence and all of that. So it appears, and they waited, you know, they waited to issue a punishment until all of that took place. So it certainly appears like the NFL learned um, a little bit uh, from from Spygate and adjusted accordingly. Makes sense. That would but, be. But, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, as of as recently as a couple of years ago, of course, we had the Bengal, we had the Patriots involved in once again taping the sideline of another team with the Bengals. Yeah. And I, I believe, if off the top of my head, the Patriots lost a third round draft pick um, because of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the question is, of course, that goes through everyone's head. Um, how, how much, okay. The, the NFL's learned a little, but what have the Patriots learned and have they ever adjusted their actions accordingly because of the punishments that the NFL is dishing out? Sure. And, and I, you know, I, that's, that's a tough one to answer. I obviously, um, I, the only way I think that the Patriots ultimately are going to be willing to stop crossing that that magical line that goes into illicit collection techniques that break NFL rules and bylaws is if the punishments are heavy enough mm -hmm. to force them to do so. And obviously, since they continue to engage in these type of activities, 
that threshold has not been crossed as of yet. They, the Patriots find it more beneficial to, to continue to, mm -hmm. to continue doing these collection activities and to lose draft picks, yeah. which tells you the value that the Patriots find in them. That's a really good point. So you have you mentioned that you believe that they're continuing to this day based on I, I mean, I think it was mostly on how how sophisticated they were in dancing around the NFL security with the covering up of the, you know, their their symbols on their jackets and the red light on the camera and all that stuff. Do you first of all, you so you do believe that they're probably or most likely according to kind of what you've seen, they're, they're probably doing stuff to this day that goes beyond what's permissible. Do you think that's fair? Well, I'll tell you this. When I read up on every, you know, the incident with the Bengals um, and the, the story that yeah. was given yeah. by the Patriots of, hey, we were, you know, we were just taping and trying to get, um, I'm trying to think of the word they used, perspective. Uh -huh. We were trying to get perspective by <laughs> videotaping the field for I don't know how long it was. It was like six minutes or something, uh -huh. you know. Um, you know, and it just sounded like a one of those stories that they had been that had been rehearsed under Spygate because they did. You know, that the 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 Patriots videographers were were told, were instructed, went through training on how to react if they were questioned about these types of activities. Sure. And, you know, it just reminded me, it reminded me exactly of that. So, you know, the bottom line is, um, you, you know, it's just a gut assessment here because obviously I have no way of, you know, right. it's two no years proof. since anything went by, but yes, my gut assessment would be that um, with everything that I know and the research that I've done in the book and just the indicators, right? Mm -hmm. Cause some, a lot of things are just allegations. Um, but yes, I, I would be very much surprised if the, if the Patriots were not, um, crossing, um, yeah, still crossing, crossing the line and, uh, and dallying in some, some techniques that, that violate some rules and, um, and bylaws. Well, I know my bullshit meter certainly was going haywire when I read that story. I mean, that just everything about it was screaming that they were trying to, you know, it, it was like being questioned, like a kid being questioned, like a teenager right. or something, when you know the moment they start talking that they're lying. And that's that's how that whole story always felt to me. As a football fan, do you feel that your view of the Patriots – you know, their legacy as a franchise as this six-time champion and all the things that they accomplished under Brady and Belichick. I mean, to me, Spygate and Deflategate and all their other infractions have really colored my perspective of them as a franchise. And I feel that because we don't know what the alternate timeline would have been, I just don't, I don't respect them as much as I would personally respect, I think, another franchise that had won that many games that didn't have that off the field stuff. Is that, as a football fan purely, is that kind of how you view the Patriots where like they're cheaters? So I don't really, I don't really consider them like the greatest franchise of all time. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think I felt like that for, for a while. Um, but, you know, the one thing I will say is that when I went through and, and started researching this, researching the book, is that a lot, of the, a lot of the coaches and a lot of the teams that have won Super Bowls and built, you know, dynasty-level teams have fallen in the same category as the Patriots um, over time of, you know, being the teams that are willing to cross those boundaries. Um, 
So let's, you know, Al Davis and the Raiders, obviously they had, they had a, you know, some fantastic teams back in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sid Gilman and the chargers in, in tons of championship games right there with them. George Hallis of the bears um, who dominated the NFL for periods of time. Definitely one of those coaches that was willing to go there. Um, you know, you mentioned the Broncos with Mike Shanahan in, in that. He was a big one for um, Huge you know, collection <laughs> techniques. And, and yeah, I mean, with the salary cap and all that, obviously, that was very controversial. Um, so, you know, I think everyone who's a, a fan of a team other than the Patriots nowadays is – you know, going to point the finger at the Patriots and say, you know, hey, you guys are cheaters. But, you know, there are there have been numerous uh, teams throughout the history of the NFL that are willing to go there to gain their championships. And frankly, some of them, like you take Al Davis, man, he's just a character now. And I honestly, I love the guy after all the research I've done. I used to hate him. Uh, <laughs> but after researching him, I realized the level of, uh, of fun um, and just innovation that he brought to the NFL. And so, you know, while, while some people would say, ah, yeah, absolutely, he cheated. Yes, he did. But, man, I mean, what a fun guy. And, and like I always, always say, you know, the NFL is, is just like, you know, it's like a Star Wars movie in a sense that, you know, they need the NFL needs its Darth Vader at times, you know, yes. it's bad guy to make it story fun. Yeah. And, and I think that's what Belichick is right now. And he brings, he brings a little something to the league that, you know, everybody, everybody may love to hate him, but that's what makes for a good story. Kevin, I, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I just kind of want to bring this full circle. Do you feel like you obviously cited a bunch of teams there that are well known through your research and i think i mean you know some of those teams surprised me a little bit the chargers surprised me a little bit because obviously as you know afc west fans were used to the chargers not winning anything um it's been a long time since the chargers have have won anything of significance but do you feel like there is a you know a cause and effect relationship that you kind of could look at through your research between these teams that are willing to push you know push the limits a little bit more and teams that are successful. In other words, you know, I mean, you didn't mention the Cleveland Browns when you were talking about teams that, you know, are willing to push these limits, you know, I guess, um, Detroit. Yeah, sure. Jacksonville. The, the teams that the teams that historically have not been successful are those teams that maybe are not pushing the boundaries quite as much. And on the flip side, you know, the teams that are pushing these boundaries and kind of engaging in these, collection techniques as you put it um charitably i think um cheating it seems like would be a fair word as well but uh are those teams more successful uh, y- yes i believe there is a correlation um absolutely so you know you mentioned like the chargers not being successful for a long time so um you know under sid gilman when they were willing to push that envelope they're winning Let- cleveland browns right uh, a team that hasn't had a lot of success in recent times but under paul brown Geez, I mean, you talk about a team that was dominant. Um, absolutely. I mean, came into the first year in the NFL and won and won the championship game. And I think they were in the championship game like the first 40, three or four years they were in the NFL. Um, and really, you know, Paul Brown just eventually got undermined by his owner. Otherwise, who knows how many uh, championships the Browns would have won. So 
you know, there absolutely is a correlation. Um, and I, my book is chocked full of examples where either the championship game or the Super Bowl is majorly impacted by the collection efforts of teams. But I want to say, you know, you it's not always fair to say collection techniques is is synonymous with cheating because a lot of the collection techniques are permissible, um, such as, you know, uh, advanced scouting or what, it, you know, mostly film study these days, mm -hmm. debriefing players and coaches as they switch teams, um, going through the media and seeing what is what you can learn about the other team through print, radio, and television. So these are just example of, you know, some of the very permissible and not even controversial techniques that are used week in and week out to try to gain that advantage. We'd almost call them necessary. Yeah. I mean, especially when you're talking advanced scouting, I yeah. mean, that's right. I mean, that's, that's, that's critical to the way the game is played and everybody does it. And without it, the NFL is, is a completely, it's completely different. So I have to share this for our listeners. This There was this great description of your book that you posted on uh, one of your social media pages. I believe it was your Facebook page. And it's this really good, uh, good long description. It says, the NFL has its own history filled with espionage-related stories that sound like something right out of the Cold War. Spies disguised as reporters, military officers, and priests, and even a dwarf playing the role of a baby being pushed in a stroller. Covert surveillance of targets' movements hiding draft prospects by shuffling them in and out of hotels and aliases, tapped telephones, signals intercepted, decoy signals, encryption, code breaking, and radio frequency jamming, false flag operations, monitoring air traffic and airline passengers, spies scaling rooftops and telephone poles, and clandestine photography undertaken from high-rise hotels with long-lens cameras, peepholes, secret listening devices, surveillance photos relayed by zipline, and whispered conversations masked by running water, stolen documents and trash cans sifted for secrets, subversion of individuals mired in debt, and a hilltop secured by Navy SEALs. So that is quite a scandalous list. I love that for anyone who's thinking about getting the book. It is out now. It came out July 13th. Go pick up the book. When you hear that list that I just said of stories, is there one that sticks out to you as the author that you were particularly proud of illuminating? Like you had to chase down a ton of leads or really pry a story out of someone? Is there is there one that makes you feel like, I'm so glad I got that in there? There's so many, there's so many great stories. And to, and to be honest, most of these stories in my book, most of the information in the book um, is not from interviews that I conducted. Um, you know, it's a very sensitive topic, mm -hmm. and most most um, the interviews that I did conduct for the most part were anonymous because, yeah, you know, I, NFL personnel are very leery about about engaging in this, um, the potential blowback from the NFL and their teams. And no one wants to be the guy who taints the legacy no. of, of another player, coach, manager. So, you know, most of these stories came from books. So what I really did more than anything was I compiled all these stories together that were scattered throughout all these books and simply put them in one place and provided the framework and obviously some expertise since I have, you know, over 20 years of experience 
collecting and safeguarding information mm-hmm. um, for the military and, and was just able to, you know, provide my my expertise and, and a bit of a, a framework to to be able to share all these stories that are just a bunch of incredible tales that that former coaches have have written about and to compile them in one spot. I believe I saw that you worked on this for about eight years. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. That is quite the undertaking. So I'm sure you feel very proud of release day. I'm sure that was a great day for you. Um, can you do a little, as our last question, we'll get you out of here. Can you do a little threat assessment on maybe the current state of espionage in the NFL and kind of like predict or warn against any type of future method of spying that isn't currently being emphasized by any teams? Basically, like what is the evolution of NFL spy tactics moving forward? Is it drones? Is that kind of one of the one of the angles they're taking now? Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, the evolution of of spying in the NFL is very interesting because as as rules change, um, the question techniques change as well. So I'll give you a few examples here. Um, so when let's take um, the use the use like headsets the implementation of headsets. Sure. Um, so signals collection used to be a, a very big thing and it, it still goes on, especially with collecting package signals, what players are going to be on the field as well as um, hand signals that quarterbacks issue to change a play at the line of scrimmage um, or even verbal, you know, verbal calls, um, verbal audibles. Uh, but for the most part, you know, signals collection is not what it used to be. So now it's much, the talk is much more about headset tampering. How can you, you know, um, you know, there's allegations that certain teams have, um, you know, um, messed with the other, the opponent's headset so they can't communicate clearly or maybe even listened in on these things. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, that's certainly, that's certainly a concern today. Um, The threat back in the day used to be with helicopters and airplanes flying over a team's practice. Sure. Um, and as a matter of fact, some coaches used to even stop practices as they were taking place. Um, when they saw, when they spotted one, right. I mean, coaches would, they'd have a guy with binoculars trying to see the, the, the registration number of these <laughs> airplanes so that they could call the FAA Wild. and, and try to figure out who they belong to. Right. Yeah. So, and of course today, right. The threat is drones or unmanned aerial vehicles. Um, which, and I spoke with a UAV expert about this topic a few months ago, and he said, man, it would be so easy. Mm-hmm. So, so easy. He says, you, you know, tell me, he's like, there's 13, 13 year old kids that could pull off this activity yeah, um, sure. without a problem. Would and that be permissible? He, um, so currently <laughs> Bill Belichick's right? listening and taking yeah, notes, right? right? Well, so, um, I would say. No, per you know, the FAA has granted the NFL the right to use drones um, over stadiums um, when they are not full uh, for the purpose of you know recording you know practices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I don't know, you know, that gets into a really big legal question. Yeah. Um, and my initial thought is that with what the NFL and teams have the rights to do that it would probably um that would be problematic um but you know it's tough to say and 
I don't, I don't believe there are any rules per se against that. But here's the thing that you have to keep in mind. The NFL, for the most part, when it comes to all these collection techniques, they do, even if it's, even if teams are, you know, doing something pretty drastic, most of the time there is not a specific rule or bylaw against the collection techniques. But the NFL has, you know, basically fair conduct yeah. rules out there. So it's kind of a catch-all mm-hmm. where if they think that a team has crossed a, you know, an ethical boundary that gave them an unfair advantage, it allows the NFL and the commissioner to punish a team without having a specific rule um, against said activity. Yeah. In any way they see fit, that's Roger Goodell's best, uh, best friend is that rule. Cause he can just kind of do whatever he wants. Well, Kevin, we super appreciate your time. Uh, once again, he is the author of Spies on the Sidelines, The High Stakes World of NFL Espionage. And you can get that right now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chegg, publisher Roman and Littlefield. Uh, he said it will be a couple weeks on that audiobook. Um, Kevin Bryant, super appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for illuminating some of that cheating. And uh, we'll see if uh, the Broncos can ever win without cheating. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks a bunch for having me on. I appreciate it.